Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today, we are speaking with Representative Elaine Luria, Democratic Congresswoman from Virginia's 2nd District. Made up of Hampton, Norfolk, and Virginia Beach, it's one of the most military-rich districts in the nation, with Oceana Naval Air Station, the amphibious base at Little Creek, and of course, the world's largest Navy base, the Norfolk Naval Station. Right across the river from Newport News Shipyards, it has one of the highest concentrations of veterans, including the largest number of female veterans nationwide. Luria is a graduate of Annapolis and served in the Navy for 20 years as a nuclear engineer and ultimately rose to commander. Currently, she is the vice chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Congresswoman Luria, welcome to Hot Wash. In prepping for this, I read that you are the first female sailor to serve her entire career on combat ships. Is that correct? Well, one of the first. I was really you know, fortunate once I started at the Naval Academy um, while I was there, um, before I graduated, the Combat Exclusion Act was lifted. So in one of the first classes of women who, once we graduated, went service selection, was able to pick uh, combatant ships. And my first ship was an old Spruance class DD out of Yokosuka, Japan, but um, amongst the first group of women on the waterfront in Yokosuka um, and had the opportunity from there to deploy on that ship to the Middle East and around the Western Pacific. And then all of my subsequent ships, you know, had the same opportunities as my um male counterparts. So it was really great to to have that same opportunity through my whole career. So over your 20 years in the Navy, what was your experience as a woman serving in terms of discrimination? Did you see that improve over that time? Uh, And where does the military still need to go on that front, especially in how it deals with sexual assault in the military. I know that's one of the issues that you've been concerned with. Yes, it, it is. And it's something that we um, uh, address in this year's defense bill, the NDAA. Um, but what I'd say is that, you know, it was there were a lot of changes over that 20 years um, and some things kind of went full circle. Um, so on my my first ship, a Spruance class destroyer out of Yokosuka, um, the only women on the ship were in the wardroom and, and about three chief petty officers. So the ship was not configured to have uh, women specifically in the crew. And it wasn't until you know, we went in a yard period and I said, we're going to bring a large enough group of women on board to fill up an entire birthing, which, you know, made sense. So you could accommodate um, a group of women. Um, but fast forward almost 20 years later, when I was the 15 or so years later, when I was the executive officer XO of a cruiser, um, ended up back on a ship that was not integrated and only had women in the wardroom. So, you know, although women, the numbers have, have grown drastically at the service academies, you know, the, each academy is between 25, 30 percent now in their incoming classes. Um, but out in the fleet, the numbers are not as high. They're not at every command, even though you know every career field is open. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. There are women who have graduated from ranger school, and I saw recently, you know, sniper school. So, you know, kudos to them. I mean, women who can uh, achieve those things, especially things that are incredibly physically demanding, those are all open to them. But you know, it's really tough, um, and I think retention is also tough as well. So that you know, work-life balance, the ability for um, you know women to make those choices to continue both with a career in the military and and start a family, I think we can we can still do more outside the box to make that career choice easier, both for men and women um, to, to help retain people. And, you know, as far as sexual assault and sexual harassment, you know, I also saw, you know, many changes in the policies um, over the course of the time that, that that I served in the military up to the you know, time I was a commanding officer. And, you know, unfortunately, I had to deal with some of those situations and some sailors who, um, you know, were we're, we're victims and affected by those types of things. So we've done a lot um, to, to help with victims' legal counsel, restricted and unrestricted reporting to allow people to get that help they need and or, um, you know, pursue um, criminal charges if um, they choose to do that. But, you know, many of these things, they go unreported. Even if they go reported, it's very difficult um, to, you know, get to resolution, um, to, to 
prosecution if um, if their charge is brought forward. And so, you know, I think it's a place that we have a, an area for continuous improvement. And I know that, you know, within the Armed Services Committee, um, you know, we've we've got several proposals in this year's NDAA, both in the House and the Senate, to try to, to move this forward and, and just help with this problem. But the real situation is we need to prevent these things from happening in the first place. So really a culture issue, training, respect amongst sailors um, and service members across all the services. So there's just always a lot of work to be done. Um, and as someone, a woman who served for 20 years myself, I feel a responsibility to try to you know keep leading on that issue. Was there a time while you were serving that either uh, you received from command above you or you perhaps in support of women who served under you uh, a, a positive example of how it was dealt with correctly or, or it, you know, you felt support uh, in the chain uh, either above you or, or in your ability to communicate to the chain below? Well, I would say that my experiences, I felt like these cases were always handled the chain of command um, uh, above me, below me, you know, with really the utmost care and respect for the people involved. But now coming to Congress as a member of Congress and having, you know, multiple constituents, female veterans organizations, you know, come and talk to me about the experiences that, that, that women have had in the service. I'm just appalled because I think that, you know, that hasn't been uniform across the services. Um, and now also serving on the Veterans Affairs Committee. I serve as the chair of the Disability Subcommittee, so all VA disability determination. So right. Struggling with, you know, so sexual assault. Se yeah. Sexual assault has been added to essentially one of the uh, disabil allowed disabilities. Uh, it is, and, and it's very difficult um, for people who are trying to get care from the VA. Although it's available, I mean, people can approach the VA and can, they have access to care immediately. So anyone who's listening should know that you can go to the VA to a VA healthcare center and and, and get care, and there's no questions asked. But you know, the claims process for disability, it's it's incredibly complex and, and just needs to treat these situations differently than, say, someone who comes in for hearing loss or back pain or, you know, those types of things, because they're very complex um, and, you know, very personal and emotional things for someone trying to, you know, file a claim for this type of um, situation. So again, within the VA, there's work to be done um, on this topic also. So you were one of the 14 moderate Democrats on House Armed Services that pushed for an increase in the military budget, roughly $24 billion over what President Biden had requested. Talk about that gap in terms of the difference between the administration's strategy, how they see things, and how you understand the challenges America faces and why you supported increasing that funding. Yes. Well, I will tell you that from the start, um, I was not uh, satisfied with the budget that came over um, from the from the White House, the administration and, you know, filtered down, especially through the Navy's budget, um, because we all know that our biggest threat is China and we have to need to have more forces, more ships, more presence in the Pacific. And that really is building and growing the Navy. Yet the budget that came over this year, it actually sought to shrink the size of the Navy, only build one destroyer, one DDG, when typically we build two per year, wanted to decommission seven cruisers and four LCS. Um, and so, you know, does it make any sense at all to be shrinking the size of the Navy in the time when we actually need to grow the Navy and have more, more presence? Um, so I set out from the start saying, you know, we, we can't go down this path and, um, you know, working across the aisle with my Republican colleagues, actually the chair of the Armed Services Committee, um, you know, was not in favor of increasing the top line. So I kind of worked uh, with the ranking member on the Republican side, Mike Rogers from Alabama and my other colleagues, um, to make sure that we could get the additional resources added um, to, to sort of stop the hemorrhaging, um, you know, from what the budget had proposed for the Navy. So we increased it um, to three destroyers, three DDGs. 
um, preserved three of the cruisers. Um, it included um, additional maritime patrol aircraft, as well as speeding up the construction of Virginia-class submarines to three a year, additional resources for the PDI, the Pacific Defense Initiative, and, you know, really... I think got to a place that sort of the bare minimum um, that we need to do um, in order to, you know, uh, continue to to grow or maintain at the minimum the the fleet that we have um, in response to China, whose navy, as we all know, is growing at, at astronomical rates, uh, you know, faster um, than than we are. And you know, if you look at the geography, you know, they're on the home field. They have the tyranny of distance on their side, um, and we really need to be able to grow the size of the Navy. Um, honestly, the the paradigm that we have of one-third, one-third, one-third split amongst the services, um, I think in our current environment with regards to China is our, is our number one um, adversary competitor threat and whatever you want to classify it. Um, we need to break that paradigm and really more resources need to go to the Navy and the Air Force. And um, I, I just can't see us continuing to justify a standing army of 485,000 um, in the current environment. So I think, you know, longer range and um, more broadly, there's more discussion that needs to be had um, because we need to set our priorities. I mean, essentially the Navy has been supporting two ground wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last two decades. Um, we've foregone uh, both ship construction and really the development of more advanced platforms. We've had several ship classes that, you know, not panned out as way initially um, intended. So the DDG-X, which became the DDG-1000, um, we only built three of them rather than 32. Um, and, you know, their main weapon system, um, you know, has been deactivated and it's being replaced with something else. Um, the LCS, we're retiring many of those, you know, within the first decade of their life and have not um, been able to deploy and operate in the way as designed. I think we're all familiar with the delays in the construction and deployment of the, the Ford class, the first in the class, the Ford um, aircraft carrier. Um, so, you know, I think that we really have a lot of, of, of catching up to do. I'm optimistic about the new frigate program. Um, and, you know, that's another platform we need, but, you know, we need to continue to grow. And I think we also need to continue to leverage some more of the lower end capabilities um, that, that we really never um, seem to emphasize within the Navy. In terms of support of the fleet, or do you mean more in terms of smaller, like littoral and unmanned? Well, kind of both. Um, I guess there's two answers there. Um, you know, one, um, you know, smaller vessels, but smaller vessels with some with some firepower. Um, you know, the frigate, I view it as a very capable platform, but kind of a two-third size DDG. Um, and we've put, you know, a lot of very high ends, uh, radars and, and weapon systems into that platform. Um, but, you know, I think that we should look towards the future for something smaller, a Corvette with a naval strike missile, and, you know, that we can build a lot of them cheaply and they can, you know, operate dispersed throughout the um, the Pacific. I think that's a capability that, that we really don't have within our Navy. Um, but when you ask about sort of the lower end or the back end, the supporting end of things, you know, we always focus a lot about the next shiny new thing we're going to buy, the next new class of ships. Um, but the truth is, is that I think we've um, overlooked uh, the maintenance uh, industrial base. Um, you know, an example, um, kind of going back a few years when we went to a new deployment rotational model, the optimized fleet response plan. We basically went from ships deploying on a six out of 24 month cycle to a six out of 36 month cycle. So the Navy came to Congress and said, we're not going to deploy 25% of the time. We're just going to deploy 17% of the time. So you do the math on all this. I mean, we've effectively reduced the size of the Navy um, by right. reducing the deployment cycle. So, I mean, there's not only that, but, you know, kind of putting the money into the maintenance infrastructure so you can deploy, you know, what we say four to make one. So for every four ships to make one on station you know, 365 days a year, we went to five to make one. So if we could go back to four to make one, you could effectively increase the size of the Navy by 20% without building any new ships. 
Um, and then uh, on top of that, the forward deployed ships, we get more presence out of those. So looking at more opportunities to forward deploy. Um, I'm optimistic the Navy is developing a, a program, Project Greyhound on the East Coast, where they're going to use some of the destroyers in a rotational model that's similar to our forward deployed ships, although the ships will be based in Konas. And that's, you know, relative to an increased submarine activity, Russian submarine activity in the North Atlantic. So um, I'm interested to see how that that works out and think that we should look at more opportunities to deploy on that FDNF forward deployed model, even for ships that are in Konas um, to you know, increase their presence. Because I think we need to be, you know, in their backyard uh, with regards to China um, every day um, and providing a credible threat. And that's challenging with the size of our current fleet. Do you see readiness as a as an issue as well? Um, the recent report on the, the Bonham Richard fire pointed to failures in training and some have seen that as an indication that they're, you know, that that's, that's a symptom of, of the, the strains that you're talking about, these in increased deployments, these lower readiness models. Recently, we had the USS Connecticut had an underwater collision. Um, I mean, we don't know what exactly the cause of that was, it's still under investigation. But do you see some of these instances as pointing to the stresses on, on the force and readiness in general? Well, Fran is, you know, I've thought a lot about this, that I think it's reflective of a, a culture issue across the Navy. And if you kind of peel it all the way back to, you know, is there a clear defined mission for the Navy? And then if you look at the Bonhomme Richard, for example, I mean, that ship had been in a maintenance availability for 19 months. And, you know, as a surface warfare officer, you know, a lot of times, if you're not an engineer or you're not a nuke on a carrier, the ship pulls in to the pier, ties up after a deployment, you maybe have some leave and then go into a maintenance availability. You know, you know, ships can easily drift into this culture of like, we're in port for 19 months and we're going to, you know, have early work days and, you know, not take this as seriously and stretch out our duty sections to as many as possible. And, you know, obviously you have to do those things to accommodate, you know, the, the work-life balance and people seeing their families. But at the same time, you have to pay the correct attention to detail to the complexity of the maintenance. Um, and are we providing that correct oversight, that correct training to deal with these complex and you know unique scenarios. You know, we do train over and over again how to operate the ship underway at sea, but then we pull the ship in and do we give the sailors any of the tools and do we have any of the infrastructure in place within the shipyard side for proper work control for training of you know how to how to fight a fire when your main firefighting system is not available and you only have one fifth or one sixth of your crew on board. So you know I think one is um making sure um, that we address and prepare for those kind of situations and have the proper oversight, um, you know, up the chain of command, the type commander, other inspection teams that, you know, I think should be providing that oversight and training. Um, I think there's a lot of issues with, um, you know, strain on the fleet and it's varied because, you know, you can see both um, carriers, for example, that have sat in the shipyard for 27 months for a docking availability and three other carrier strike groups, that have double deployed in the last two and a half years. And, you know, I think that investment in the maintenance infrastructure and, you know, putting all the strain on some ships while other ships are, you know, stuck in maintenance. You know, we really need to look at making those investments in the, the back end, the tail, the maintenance side, the logistics supply chain for things that actually hold up these availabilities, the planning process, the contracting process for them. So I think there's a lot of pieces that can generate more readiness that are equivalent almost in some cases to buying more ships if you can operate them more efficiently, get them out on time, and, and most of all, prevent these, um, you know, catastrophic and preventable, you know, accidents and fires. 
So let's talk about the strategy that's informing uh, those budgeting priorities uh, that you were talking about earlier in terms of the specific ships and this, the, the shape of the balance of force. You wrote an op-ed in the Post recently titled, Congress Must Untie Biden's Hands on Taiwan. You're essentially arguing for a kind of pre-authorization of military force in the case of a PRC invasion of the island of Taiwan. Why do you think that's necessary? And do you think that could contribute to an escalation with China rather than a deterrence? I think there's a few things in your question there. You started out with the strategy that's driving these decisions. Um, I've been very vocal and written quite a few articles, including one in SEMSEC and some others, talking about how there's a lack of strategy. Um, you know, when the Navy and the other services, for that matter as well, come before Congress, it truly it doesn't start out with a strategy. You can't go back, for example, like when John Lehman was Secretary of the Navy under President Reagan, there was a clear strategy. We needed a 600-ship Navy to defeat the Soviet Union. This is why we need this number of carrier strike groups in the North Atlantic, this number in the Mediterranean, this number in the Pacific. You add it up, it's 15 carrier strike groups that ends up being 600 ships. And we have support from the absolute top, from the president on down, that we're going to build a 600-ship Navy. And we do it. We built 597 ships. Um, and it was in important and, and critical at that key time um, with regards to the Soviet Union. But today, you know, you ask the Navy or any service, like, what's your strategy? And there are operational plans, don't get me wrong, but a, a true strategy that can come up with, this is the reason this justifies what's in our 30-year shipbuilding plan, or this justifies what's in, for example, Battleforce 2045, the um, document that was put out at the end of the last administration. There isn't a clear strategy. And so yeah, there has to be a strategy that then drives the requirements, that then drives the POM, that then drives the budget. It happens all in reverse. Basically, you know, there's a top line budget put out for the Department of Defense. It gets divvied up. The Navy's going to get, you know, roughly one third of that. And then the only thing they can do is come to Congress and say, like, this is the best we can ask for with what we think we're going to get. So we got a budget this year asking for one DDG. You know, in the time that we need to grow the Navy, the ship that we can build reliably on schedule and on cost and timeline is a DDG. We can build two a year and you're going to only request one. So, that, I mean, I think there's a problem there that the lack of clear strategy um, is a problem. And without that clear strategy, you can't come to Congress and define the risks of not doing something. Um, but then as far as um, the, the op-ed that I wrote with regards to the president's hands being tied, um, with regard to potential China um, invading Taiwan. The real purpose behind writing it is that I think we really need to have this debate. Our policy has been strategic ambiguity, but you know, let's, let's have a debate. Should it be strategic ambiguity or should we find a policy that's strategic clarity? Are we going to come to Taiwan's defense? And if you look at the current law, um, the War Powers Act, for example, um, you know, if China invades Taiwan, doesn't attack U.S. forces or U.S. territory, what authority do we have to come to Taiwan's defense? I mean, the policy used to be from about 1955 to 1978, the Formosa Resolution, we had a commitment to defend Taiwan, but our policy changed um, in 1979, the Taiwan's Relations Act, and we have this policy of strategic ambiguity. So, you know, if you think about the time and distance to cross the Strait of Taiwan, about 110 nautical miles, and the Chinese do this exercise every year, um, you know, a hundred, I mean, they do, they do this exercise every year, um, and they practice an amphibious invasion. So if they could turn right instead of left, for example, and cross the strait and a decision needs to be made quickly, um, there's not time essentially to come to Congress and have that debate at that point in time, because you'd have a fait accompli. Um, and, you know, you look at a scenario where the U S forces are 
position, there's a credible deterrent. We could intervene in a way to prevent China from invading Taiwan or, or mitigate you know, the, their actions. You, you, you can't do that. Um, currently. And so I think it's a debate that we need to have. And it was very interesting that recently the president did a town hall on TV, I think on CNN, and he was asked, you know, would we come to, to Taiwan's defense? And he unequivocally said yes. <laughs> um, but interestingly, that statement got walked back. Um, and of note, about 20 years earlier, President Bush was asked the same question. And he said, Yes, we would. Um, and at that time, then Senator Biden wrote an op-ed to the Washington Post criticizing President Bush for making those remarks. So, you know, the, the strategic ambiguity is ambiguous to the top. And we've had, you know, and this is just an example of two presidents, you know, who clearly said, yes, we have a commitment to Taiwan, but then have to, you know, sort of walk walk that back in the sense that, like, do we? Do we not? Um, and so I think that, you know, the the reason for, for writing the op-ed, for pointing out that, you know, as far as legal authority is concerned, the president's hands are tied. He couldn't respond right now if we had indications that the Chinese were crossing the strait. There's no legal authority um, for him to do that. You can't introduce U.S. forces into a location where hostilities are likely. Um, you know, obviously, U.S. forces can always act in self-defense, but um, if they're not directly involved in, you know, some sort of action, then then there's not an authority directly to respond. So I think it's it's a very important debate to have, so we understand ahead of time what what, what action we're going to take. Would you advocate for more diplomatic clarity on that relationship? I mean, obviously, we prefer diplomatic clarity to, you know, any sort of um, direct uh, in engagement. Um, I know that the president did have the opportunity to speak with President Xi and having, you know, seen the results of that. I don't know that, that this is something that was directly resolved in that discussion. Um, I think that the Chinese essentially came back and said, you know, you're... Your desire to help defend Taiwan is provocative in and of itself. And I completely understand that there's a fine line between deterrence and provocation. You know, deterrence we we have and we have for a very long time had a carrier strike group and an amphibious ready group in the Western Pacific based out of Yokosuka and Sasebo, Japan, and the Mu um, out of Okinawa. You know, we have that as a deterrent in the region and we have, you know, various, you know, things that, that it could respond to. And, and regular patrollings in the sea lanes that China yeah, regular, considers regular patrollings, you know, obviously they view it as provocative if we transit through the strait every now and then, a little more provocative if we transit with one of our allies. For example, we've had, you know, quite a few of our of our allies, right. um, even European allies um, operating in the region more frequently. Um, and so there's a difference between a destroyer transiting through the strait once every other month, for example. And if we had three aircraft carriers on a daily basis transiting through the strait, right? So there's deterrence and then there's provocation and where is that line? But I think that we need to have a credible deterrent that can actually show that we have the ability to respond if we make the decision to do so. You also serve on Veterans Affairs. The Veterans Administration recently changed the standard of how it treats veterans with exposure to airborne toxics, uh, toxins, the burn pits that are common in war zones of the past 20 years. Changes to make it a, a presumption of exposure, making it easier for vets to take advantage of health benefits on things like asthma and rhinitis. But the more serious diseases, such as cancers, that some veterans link to the burn pits are still just being studied as a part of those rules changes. Do you think the rule change went far enough? And talk about the legislation that you're working on to go further than that. Well, you know, I think anything, any step we take to help more veterans get the health care they deserve for their service is a step forward. But I do not think um, that the actions taken by the VA secretary alone are enough. 
Um, I do agree with the presumptive um, aspect of it. Um, it's been really challenging for veterans who've served overseas in Iraq, Afghanistan, other places in Southwest Asia to prove what they were exposed to where. And the idea that it's presumptive exposure if you served in this area of the world during this time, we know it was common practice for burn pits and we're going to presume that you've had exposure. So that's step one. And that's a, a big step and I think helps take a burden off of veterans. Um, and respiratory issues are, are very common and it's a good step forward that, um, you know, through the VA secretary, they're working to, you know, provide healthcare um, for those particular um, illnesses. But we we definitely need to do more. Um, and we have legislation pending both in the House and the Senate, very comprehensive legislation that both puts into law the presumptive aspect of the exposure, um, but in the House version also includes 23 specific illnesses related to burn pit exposure. Um, and what that means is that it will cover the respiratory issues as well as uh, quite a few cancers. I mean, the incidences of you know rare cancers in a population of otherwise healthy younger adults is extremely high um, amongst a group of veterans who've served in this part of the world. And, you know, although we are still doing studies, looking for conclusive evidence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of my colleagues, Dr. Um, Ruiz, who's also on the Veterans Affairs Committee, puts it really succinctly, like you're not going to set your trash can on fire in your backyard and sit on your back porch for 14 hours a day and breathe in the smoke. You know that's bad for you and you know it's dangerous. So that's essentially what our veterans um, who served near these burn pits were asked to do during their service. And we need to take care of them. So Really, it's the number one priority of the Veterans Affairs Committee in both the House and the Senate um, to, to move this legislation forward. And I would say as well, the president, I mean, he has said that his son, Beau, who, who we know died from a rare cancer, it could very well have also been due to this type of exposure overseas. So it's very personal for him. And it's the number one priority for all of us on the Veterans Affairs Committee, this Congress, to keep pushing this forward and, and try to take the burden off the veterans and get people the health care that they need. The VA has been particularly resilient in not changing. I, I think it's been it, over multiple administrations, it's had real difficulty uh, dealing with uh, backlogs and cases and changing the way that it operates. Obviously, it's an immense organization. It's dealing with a huge number of people and there are great facilities in the VA and there are other facilities that are are not as great. Why do you think that it's so difficult to improve the VA? And uh, are you optimistic about about seeing real change? Um, I'm optimistic. I would say that, you know, uh, when you talk to a veteran who's received care at the VA, they're usually very pleased and feel like they've had, you know, excellent care. A lot of times the challenges are, you know, getting their claims processed or, you know, kind of getting that initial appointment. And we deal with a lot of that as a congressional office, you know, constituents call and, you know, ask for that help uh, getting through that process or getting connected. And our veteran service organizations do a lot to help people understand and navigate that. But it's incredibly complex um, to, to file claims and you know, everything that you said about the slowness and the difficulty of it has been compounded by COVID as well. Um, there was a period of time that VA facilities were, were closed. On top of that, the compensation and pension exams, um, those were not being done in person. So there's a backlog that's grown for those. Um, and so the VA is really putting every resource that they can. They're hiring hundreds of additional people to process these claims um, and move them forward. So, you know, I think one of the main things on the committee, in addition to giving those resources to have more people is, you know, the oversight aspect, you know, is there, 
uniformity in the training? Are the exams that are being conducted because they've been shifted mostly to contract exam personnel? So, you know, people won't go to a doctor at the VA hospital to get the exam, but they'll go to a doctor in the community. Are we making sure those are standardized, that every veteran gets the same, you know, look and the same exam and using the same standards? You know, the, the, just the size and scale of it is so big that I think that the oversight role within the house and some of the um, OIG reports and, and GAO reports, you know, about the effectiveness of the VA of implementing these recommendations for for improvement, um, it's it's staggering how difficult and how long it takes to implement some of those things. Um, so, you know, I think that we've done things in the, the last uh, few years. The Mission Act, for example, allows, you know, veterans um, to, to have care in the community based off of either distance or wait time. So there have been improvements made in how far a veteran needs to drive or, or how long they might need to wait to see a specialist. So really trying to leverage, you know, the inherent um capabilities within the VA as well as those within the community to help veterans get the care they need um, as quickly as possible. So, you know, I think on the committee, all of us are looking at what do we do to get the veteran the best care as quickly as possible um, and to make sure um, that that no veteran, um, you know, you know, has to has to wait for for care unnecessarily. Um, and, you know, another thing that is incredibly um distressing is, you know, veterans' mental health care, PTSD, the suicide rates, and, and making sure that veterans understand what care is available. Um, you know, maybe a few veterans will listen to this podcast and, and hear, you know, there's been a lot of um, misinformation about, you know, characterization of discharge, for example, um, you know, for veterans in crisis, whether that's, you know, suicidal ideations, you know, needing mental health care, suffering from PTSD, military sexual trauma claims. I mean, the VA is there for those veterans, no questions asked. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about uh, characterization of discharge. You know, someone maybe got an other in the honorable discharge or bad conduct discharge. Um, you know, that doesn't matter when it comes to receiving urgent care from the VA. So people should know that that's available um, and that there's a lot of work, I think, that needs to be done on those characterization of discharges, because especially for mental health issues, there's a direct connection, you know, between someone's performance and disciplinary issues and PTSD and why they, you know, weren't able to continue to serve um, and, and mental health issues. So, you know, I think we're really trying to look at that process as well to make sure that, you know, we can stop some of these tragedies and make sure that veterans know that they have care uh, available. So last question, Congress is in an incredibly contentious place right now. Uh, the nation's highly divided politically. What keeps you motivated? What keeps you excited about doing this job, uh, getting up in the morning and going to a place where it's very, very, very difficult to get things done? Well, you know, one of the things, it's one of the questions I get asked the most is like, is it as crazy as we see on TV? Um, and I would say, you know, it's not. And there's a few places where we are able to come together and find common ground and work on issues. And I'm really lucky on the two main committees I serve on armed services and veterans affairs. Those are places where that still happens. Um, and then with other veterans, I think, you know, serving in the military is inherently apolitical, right? You don't ask the sailor next to you, Democrat or Republican, you know, you've got a mission, you get it done. And, and that's not something that, you know, colors you know, someone's performance or promotion opportunities or, or those types of things. You know, you, you don't look at that. Um, you like that saying in the wardroom, you're not supposed to talk about um, politics, sex or religion, right? You know, so, um, um, but, you know, veterans, I think, 
find a lot of ways to work together. And we have an all veteran caucus called the Four Country Caucus. Um, and we've been able to make a lot of progress on issues that are for veterans, for military families, um, you know, just related to military readiness and service. And so, I mean, that's really encouraging to know that there's a lot of veterans on both sides of the aisle within Congress who are willing to work together on these issues. Well, I think that's a good place to end it there for today. Congresswoman Luria, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I hope you come back and talk to us again. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military, defense, and national security issues that matter. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.